You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. Biggest problem or challenge with uh, content strategies today, I think it's it's really hard to get attention on those platforms. And the business model is pro- prohibiting you from, from getting that attention. You may get a view, but what is a view really? A view on TikTok is a second of video consumption. People can't have more than 200 relationships. That's, you know, that's, I think that's been established by research, right? In the same way, you cannot have relationships with 10,000 brands a day or impressions a day. Our brains are not built for that. If you can gather a community around your club or your league or your sport, whatever you're doing, that's an opportunity because there's a lot of advertising dollars that are looking for a targeted community you know, based on first party data and understanding of the customers within that community. That's going to happen and explode, is my prediction, you know, in 2022. Hi there, welcome to Sports Content Strategy. My name is Richard Clark. My guest this time, Johan Juncker, who's the CEO and co-founder of a company called Antarach. Often I produce podcasts on practical side of content, how to do this, how to do that. This is not one of those chats. This is more theoretical. Johan wrote a blog that I particularly liked on LinkedIn, so I got him in to talk about content strategy, really, what he feels about it, where it's going with regard to some very important recent changes. So this is a a cerebral thinking podcast. As I say, my name is Richard Clark. My area is content strategy, but I try and be a thinker on the subject, try and take a different approach, not following what other people are doing. I've been in this game for over 20 years with professional sports clubs around the world. And if you need me to help you think about your content strategy and how to define your content strategy and how it fits in terms of communication, digital marketing, and all the other touch points for content strategy, then do let me know. My website, mrrichardclark.com. On social, I'm at mrrichardclark pretty much on everything. Just put an E on the end of the Clark and you'll get me. Anyway, without further ado, let's get our thinking caps on and talk about content strategy with this man. I am Johan. I'm the CEO and founder of a company called Entourage. And it's a technology company based out of Stockholm. We work with rights holders to build engaged communities on the rights holders owner operated channels, which means their apps and websites. And we use our proprietary software platform to enable fans to participate and support superfan content. So what that means is actually providing a social media experience away from the social platforms, if that makes sense. So our hypothesis has always been, there's a new standard in media with regards to consumer patterns. And that is a participatory one. Like, you know, the social media thing where people are continuously creating uh, content together and that's not gonna uh, decrease over time as we see it. So we thought if this is the new, you know, consumer pattern that is uh, dominant, and if this is what people are spending four hours a day on, why wouldn't that experience work on the owner operated channels and be a much more compelling offering to the fans? And in addition to that, what happens when you are adding super fans as your ambassadors into that community? Would the fans relate to that kind of stuff uh, in a better in a better way? Would they recognize that kind of you know relationship and that kind of conversations from social platforms? We we thought probably. And uh, the good thing is that we're 
we have now market validation that we were right. And I'm happy to say that it works really well. So, uh, you know, by offering social media style content to your fans on your owner operated channels, you actually keep and retain your fans much, much better than you would do with, uh, let's say, one-sided, you know, like one-way communication pieces, like articles and stuff like that. Those things are still important, of course, and and people will still go to the owner-operated channels too. If you're a fan of a team or a club or a league, you're going to go there to, you know, buy a ticket or maybe, you know, see what's the latest uh, in the standings and the tables, that sort of thing. Or you might want to buy a piece of merchandise or whatever it might be, right? But if you add this, you know, sort of next level of, participatory, uh, let's say, media experience that is a contemporary sort of a modern day one, in addition to what is already there, that is really, that is really uh, um, you know, increasing the sort of level of, let's call it compelling offering that you have uh, on your own or operated channels. So that, that's what we do in a nutshell. Thanks for speaking to me, Johan. So you've talked about what your, your company does. I, I, I wanted to talk to you about content strategy and part of what your company does is, is is solve some of the issues. So in terms of content strategy itself, and you know, you've worked around Europe and you're based in Sweden, am I right in Sweden? Yeah, we, so we, we started in Sweden, we're a Swedish company. Uh, we have, let's call it boots on the ground in, in various places uh, from you know, Italy to Ukraine, the UK, United States. So what do you see as the weaknesses in content strategy within the sports industry at the moment you've talked about some of the issues with social media but more generally the way that that, that sports organizations approach their co- their content strategy what do you see as 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 the main weaknesses there because you've written a lot about this on your blog and that's mm. that's how i got in touch with you in the first place the main weakness oh that's a good question um i'd like to zoom out a little bit and just you know, maybe go back in history, if that's okay, and sort of see, you know, what happened in the last decade. Um, Because I I was working at Discovery Networks as a creative director in 2012, 2013, 2014. And that was exactly the time when, you know, media had ignored technology platforms for a very long time. And they would consider it sort of like a word of mouth marketing platform. But they were actually more and more considering social platforms as a, a threat to their business, right? And they really didn't know how to position themselves uh, towards that threat as I see it. And I think it was also the point in time where technology platforms had sort of reached a critical mass. And I'm talking about the social platforms, especially. And they were growing so fast. So they sort of started ignoring media. So it's almost like they up to that point, try to get into the media to get attention, you know, because these companies were doing IPOs and set, et cetera. But the media companies were the dominant ones, even if they were sort of entering the last decade of dominance, some of them, if you know what I mean. And so they sort of kept the technology thing sort of out of it and called, just call it sort of word of marketing, uh, word of mouth marketing sort of. Um, and then Tables sort of turn a bit uh, with regards to, you know, shifting of powers, that sort of thing. And technology companies were growing so fast, like I said, at that point and forward. So they started ignoring the media. So it's kind of, it's pretty funny in a way. And they instead started to print the rules of the game, honestly. And in the beginning, it was so easy to get on those platforms and, you know, and fun. 
because it was participatory, it was new thing, you were utilizing hardware technology like smartphones in a, in a much better way, the app stores, you know, what have you, all that stuff, right? It's just more fun than traditional media, which is linear and sort of, like I said before, it's just one way communication. And I think it's important to, to recognize that technology companies were sort of ignoring media and like that entire industry and just sort of rewriting the, the, the rules of the game. And in the beginning, like I said, it was really easy to get on those platforms, have fun, you know, grow your following and actually reach your following and interact with the people that followed you and follow them back, et cetera. It was like a fun time, 2013, you know, 12, 13, all the way up to like 2016. That's when I think this sort of, let's call it the experiment hit the fan in a bit, if I, pardon my French, but, um, you know, swinging the elections, you know, it's so such a dilution on the platforms. I think everybody's listening, understand what I'm talking about. Like there, there's so many video, minutes of video being uploaded every, every second. It's just impossible to watch all of that stuff. And it's uh, algorithms are sort of, you know, taking over the entire sort of uh, surfacing of different kinds of content to different person, you know, persons or, or users on these platforms. And, and with the goal to just create as many impressions as possible. I think that's the main problem here is really based on the business models of the, of the social platforms that in the beginning were this fun place with participatory culture, it was so easy to get on it, and it's such a, an enjoyment, right? And to then suddenly where, they turned into businessmen. Suddenly uh, it was well, all fun, they, they and suddenly always, there was a business behind it. Yeah, you're right. Like suddenly a couple of things happen, in all sincerity. All of a sudden it's a job to be an influencer, 2016. All of a sudden everybody is, is on the social platforms. All of a sudden social platforms is essentially the internet, right? And, but if influencership, like if, if working as an influencer is a job and you're just, you know, you're doing all the work really, that's your profession, but you're not really getting a return on investment because the platforms have a business model that is generating as many impressions as possible to show as many ads as possible. That to me is a problem because no matter how much you know, you effort you put into, you know, creating your wonderful piece of content. I'm sure there's a lot of great videos out there that a lot of fans would like to see, but they never surface in front of those fans because the algorithms will not sort them towards those fans because they are, they're so occupied in creating all these impressions. So you, you're sort of getting lost in this sort of vast ocean of too many things going on, like too many videos being uploaded, and the business model, as I see it. And I think it's clear by now, you know, with um, all the sort of, uh, you know, post-rationalization of what happened in the election in the US, you know, with Donald Trump and many other things, that this is a pretty big issue for society as I see it. So I think that's, you know, on your question again, what is the sort of biggest problem or challenge with uh, content strategies today? I think it's, you know, it's sort of, that's sort of, uh, that's where I would like to start, you know, the discussion of what the challenges are. It's really hard to get attention on those platforms. And the business model is pro prohibiting you from, from getting that attention. You may get a view, you know, a view, but what is a view really? A view on TikTok is the second of video consumption. And it's essentially impossible to scroll past a video that is already playing in your feed 
in less than a second. So anything that you scroll past, even if you're not engaging with it, you're not watching it, and you couldn't care less about what it was, it's still a view on TikTok. That's why the views are so high on TikTok. But I, I would claim actually, and this is maybe the point here, so many things to discuss in this area, but the point I think with the views, is that kind of a futile kind of metric. I wouldn't say that's the most important metric. And if you look at platforms like Netflix or Disney Plus, they don't count the views. What they focus on is the dwell time. And the dwell time is the number one metrics on the OTT platforms, of course, because it's really the thing that matters if you think about it. If you, if you look at time as a currency, which is what the intention economy is supposed to be, right? I think there's, there's two kinds of way of looking at it. Like one is a, is a short moment in time where your brain hardly can notice what it is. That's a view to me. And the other way, thing would be, um, it's a relationship where it's time, yes, but it's also a function of the length of the interaction or the length of the engagement between the content that you're consuming or, or interacting with rather, and, and the time you're spending with you know, participating in generating that content. That is a, a synergy. And the value of that, I think, it, you know, that, um, what should I call it? That um, time spent uh, increases exponentially over time as time sort of passes with regards to the dwell time that a fan is spending with the video or, or the content. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if you follow right. that, but yeah, yeah. So can you just explain that again? Because you were uh, you you drew something with your hands, which won't come out in the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Yeah. So, so so I guess my point is like if you spend if you spend a, a second watching a video, it, it's not something that will stick. Like, and you do that all day long. You can actually do have sixty impressions or so. Let's say thirty to sixty impressions in a minute. If you spend an hour doing that. You do the math, 60 times 60, 3,600 impressions in one minute. And then most people are spending more than one hour a day on social media. So that means you can have 10,000 views. I mean, just one, one person, like you, know, you or me, we could see 10,000 videos in a day on TikTok. How are you going to sort that information? Yeah, Your brain is not and, built for that. So what you're saying is it's built for breadth, but not depth. And, and it's, depth that, it's depth that counts. If Netflix is right, if, if it's valuable to spend time, just like you have a friend, right? You know, do you want to see a friend for coffee for two seconds and then go see the next friend? Like people can't have more than 200 relationships. That's, you know, that's, that's actually research. I think that's been established by research, right? In the same way, you cannot have relationship with 10,000 brands a day or impressions a day. Our brains are not built for that. I mean, so it makes more sense to, to view it uh, as the most important metric that you should you know, look at. I, in my view, again, this is gonna be probably quite uh, upsetting for a lot of people, but um, a long dwell time is much more important because you're building a more sticky relationship because I think the time spent with your followers and fans and you know, co-creators is establishing a, a much more, you know, let's call it deeper relationship, which opens up to a lot of opportunity. I, and this is, yeah, it, it, it's very interesting to say that because I've increasingly in the conversations of the podcast that I've created, I've moved to the position where 
depth is so much more important than breadth because you can now reach everybody so easily. And if you, even if you go back to work such as Kevin Kelly's article on 1000 true fans, you know, where, where he argues that uh, a, a creator, if, if 1000 p- people are buying everything that creator creates and is truly properly into him, you have a business yeah. and you move that over to like something like Spotify, for example, where you can reach lots of people, but you're being paid so little in comparison because you've mm. you've got to go through another platform um mm. and you, you you're not capable of making that sort of deep connection which leads to a financial transaction which allows you to be a creator and have a life you know right <laughs> and that's that's hard hard to do and this kind of builds into the the blog that one of the blogs that really attracted me to um, to talking to you, which is about the cookie apo- apocalypse. You, that's what you called it. And, yeah. and just to quote you, um, the truth is you're probably paying uh, social platforms more and more to reach fewer and fewer. And you have no idea who the few fans that you do engage with really are and that's your point about first party data which is literally deepening that connection so you can create your 1000 true fans or whatever it is and it's all about losing the obsession with big numbers and going for deep numbers yeah i mean you could do both of those things simultaneously as i say i mean you can feed those platforms with content still, but you shouldn't expect to build a business there. Um, recently, I've been talking to rights holders, and I'm not going to mention any names, but I mean, this goes across, I think this is a representative for, for a lot of rights holders. So I think a lot of people recognize this. I was speaking with um, um, the media, like the marketing people at a big sports property in the US, and we were talking about exactly what we're talking about now. And I asked, you know, the, the typical sort of sales question. So what are some of the challenges that you're facing now, you know, with regards to, you know, your micro content and your media um, presence and, and, and especially maybe on the social platforms? They're like, yeah, we, you know, the number one uh, challenge that we have is to produce the volume, like the number of views or impressions that we're creating. So we can report that back to, you know, brand X, Y, and Z and say, hey, we reached those numbers. And the next question is, is obviously, so, okay, so how are you solving those challenges, right? And they said, well, we put $5,000 behind our Facebook videos. So here's the thing, like before this conversation, my co-founder, my colleagues and I had done a bit of research using like, you know, products like Tagger and, and, and other sort of, you know, social media analytics tools uh, to see how this specific property was performing. And we saw some terrible numbers with regards to engagement rates, even on the videos that they put $5,000 behind. And that becomes a little upsetting to me, you know what I mean? Like there are some people that figure out how to really crush it on social platforms. And most properties, sports properties, clubs and leagues, they don't certainly have not. If I put it this way, the ones that are crushing it on, on, on social platforms are usually like personalities that people can relate to. And they really sort of cut through the noise. They're sharing hundreds of pieces of content every day. Like they have a, um, a camera, 
you know, following them around all day long because everything can be a piece of content in a certain, you know, social platforms. Like you never know when it's going to appear. That's how you have to work social platforms. Like it's almost like you need to document your entire life and you got to share as much value as you can share with your, you know, your, your audience or your community, right? And you got to document everything you do all day long. And sports properties are more like kind of stuck in the, you know, old fashioned way of doing things. I think it has to do with the, the entire industry, how it's sort of not cemented necessarily, but hasn't changed that much with regards to relationships with, between sponsors and how they are used to seeing things. And, and, and yeah, you know what I mean? Like, but I think it's, it's really important that sports properties will leverage their personalities. Because if they do, honestly, like they can sit back. They have so many and relax and just see how, how their, their engagement is going to go through the roof. But the key is to really let the personalities do what they're doing. Allow that to happen. And I think we're at a point in time, honestly, with um, you know Clubhouse, Twitter Spaces, transparency is increasing. Authenticity is not even a thing anymore. It's not even a buzzword. It's like yesterday's news. The top 10 podcasts in the world are not ran by media companies or institutions. They're ran by personalities or, you know, a group of personalities. And I think sports properties should adopt that. Like they should use. So for social platforms, you probably want to use a robot, a robot to do the posting for you because there's a robot on the other side. So a robot should be talking to a robot. A robot social on the platforms. Side. So why do you mean a robot on the other side? Yeah, I mean the content that you're pushing to the social platforms is essentially is not taken care of, you know, it's not received by like an editor, like, like a person, you know what I mean? Like it's a robot looking at the, that content, analyzing it and, and putting it somewhere, to, you know, do you know what I mean? Like presenting it to users in a certain algorithmic fashion. That's a robot, right? So you should have a robot that knows how the robot will react. Ah, okay. Time of day, you know, what, what kind of content should I be pushing? What are the macro, you know, what is going on on a macro level right now on the social platforms? You can get that information through the APIs of the social platforms if you pay for it. And there's a lot of interesting products that are already existing for, you know, to understand the social media landscape. A human brain is not made to understand unless you want to go for the personality thing that I described earlier, like the influencer that is, documenting, uh, you know, 24-7, everything they do in their lives and, and sharing essentially everything. Like you need to have a crew around you almost or work very, very hard yourself. But another solution could be, because is, is to have like a, a robot that is publishing things for you, pretty much automized. And because again, a robot will talk to a robot and that's much, I think that's a bet, better interface, a better relationship for for, it would increase, increase the efficiency, in my view. And then you have you have uh, WSC, I think, is that the name of the company? Israeli company that are doing AI, like real-time object, object recognition of like game footage, match footage, and taking, you know, clips from a game and just putting that out in different, that's, that's a good example of a robot doing the work for you on the social platform. That's really, that needs to be adopted I know that a lot of uh, rights holders are already doing that, but if you're not, just you should really get on that train right now. That means 
humans, which are more, you know, we can speak to humans. I think uh, you should sort of put your effort into more editorial pieces, if I, you know, put it that way. And when you do that, when you're creating something that is more, you know, takes more effort for you, and maybe it's a, um, a piece that will, you know, that you really want a lot of fans to see because you know it's going to build like an emotional relationship between you and your fans. I think that should not be posted on social platforms, really. I think you should keep that sort of at least at a semi level inside the sort of castle walls of, of your, you know, your property. And I think that's where we come in, really. So I think um, using personalities that are from your community as your ambassadors in, inside the castle walls, you know, enable your, your, your super fans and your fans to support you uh, through participating, uh, participating in, in the content, really. Not only the, actually, I'm talking about, you know, the normal stuff like chat, interaction, comments, and answering polls, these sort of things. But I'm actually talking about like non-mandatory, you know, support, financial support, like microtransactions. Right. Who work really well inside the castle walls. I think that's a business model that will help a lot of sports properties to, to grow their, let's call it the own and operated community with, of registered fans. And, and, that, and then the third thing, capture the first party data, right? And the way to do that is, is really to have some kind of a compelling offering to your, your fan base, whether it's a, you know, a podcast, is really kicking butt, it's very interesting, or it's some of the type of content, whether it's a, you know, a campaign, it could be various of things, right? But one of the tools that you have to work with is obviously you know, video content. A video content has, has, has many benefits. It's, um, I think I read somewhere that you, know, you share a piece of video like six times more often than an image. So obviously there's a virality effect you you know video according to snapchat is like the new way of uh, of chatting really it's like it's it's just it's the way new way of sort of typing you know it's it's completely taken over from from writing a text message so it's kind of the new text message it has a much more higher level of sort of emotional um what is the word i'm looking for like engagement between you and and your and, and the one that is viewing the content right I think that's, that's a, and, and then you put that into a business model that doesn't lead the fan away from the content. Instead, the business model should be awarding the fan to stick around. Again, back to the dwell time and the value of that. So uh, it sounds more complicated than this, I think. And um, robots already exist. So, and, and they're already out there. There's you know, tons of great companies that can do that for you. And I, I mean, even last week, I saw a great new product from from Infront Sports, they have a new product called Content X, I think, uh, or Content Hub, and they're doing exactly that. So that will sort of take care of 70, 75, 80% of your sort of social media presence, and you're leveraging your already existing, you know, um, ocean of content that you have in your, in your ecosystem, but you're putting that out at the right time, in the right way, uh, et cetera, uh, using a robot. I don't and know if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that, that does in the sense that you are working with the algorithm rather than against the algorithm almost using intelligence. Correct. Um, in, uh, 100%. Your own intelligence. That's a very, 
Yeah, exactly. That's very important. Yeah, yeah. You, you, your own intelligence to understand when this content is going to hit. As I say, working with the algorithm, understanding the algorithm. Still going to need a human element in terms of the way that's framed. It's got to fit with the brand, etc. In terms of framing of the content, I would assume. But in terms of that aggregation, that distribution strategy, that's where that part really mm. comes in, right? Yeah, exactly. But I think it's, you know, you can have the editorial piece that you're talking about or sort of the branding part you can set up those templates. You know, yes. this, here's one template. And then you tell the robot, like use this template for Tuesday match day. Use this template for, you have somebody to control that would be controlling that of course, like the way your brand is presented. But once you set up the basics and the foundation, there's very little maintenance. But, but that's a yearly job rather than a, a weekly daily job. Yeah. So I set mean, up those templates. I mean, th this is gonna sound terrible, but it allows you to, to fire 70% of your social media department. So, but, or I would rather say, let's relocate them because I don't like firing anybody. That's not the right thing to do, but you can reallocate your resources to things that matter to you and your business. And I think that's, that's, that's a key here. So imagine if you could use that sort of leftover or you know, the, the sort of exceeding 70% of your resources now into editorial pieces because the robots are doing the work with the posting, right? And you set up the framework for it, you got the foundation in place and everything's just running. It's, it's just, it's like a, a walk in the park for you. Everything's honky-dory. Let's just play with that thought. What you should do, I think instead is, is establish almost like a programming wheel for your ambassadors, your super fan influencers and your community and get them into the habit of visiting your platforms more often. And obviously this that's a very, very much a shameless plug for what we do but uh, I, I would even say the same thing for 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 you know for our competitors i think you know it doesn't necessarily need to be entourage but i mean i spoke to so many rights holders today that they, you know some of those some of the big ones say heck we got like 100 million users coming into our website on a yearly basis aggregated like 100 million unique users, some big ones. This is, I'm talking about some really big ones here. And, and then, we, then I say, okay, so how many of those users are registered? And I'm not gonna like low single digit percentages, right? And then, so, and I said, so why, why is that? And they said that you don't want to register those users? No, it's, we don't really have anything that rivals the big platforms. Like we don't have a compelling enough offering, and this is quote unquote from, from a big rights holder, an interesting enough or compelling enough offering to the fans. So that's why they don't register. Yeah. We would love to do that. It's actually our major, like our, our biggest KPI for, for the next couple of years is to capture as much of the, those users' first party data, you know, as we can, because we're missing out on a big opportunity. Back to your cookie question, right? So marketing rules are gonna change completely in my view. And also rules for, for you know, running a company, you know, customer acquisition for, for a startup is changing with the disappearance of cookies and actually the disappearance of, of third party cookies on, on the Apple platform. Those are you know, similar plays from, from those two giants, right? And they're really all the way up there in the food chain and it's just completely changing the game for everybody below. And the way it's gonna change, I think, let's start with the opportunity first, 
which is kind of the, I think the, I hope the takeaway from, from the piece that I wrote is that community, like if you can ga- gather a community around your club or your league or your sport, whatever you're doing, that's an opportunity because there's a lot of advertising dollars that are looking for a targeted community, you know, based on first party data and understanding of the customer customers within that community. And th- that's going to happen and explode, essentially, is my prediction, you know, in 2022. Because marketing rules are completely going to change when you can't track individuals across a myriad of websites, you know, everywhere. Because you know what it's like today when you go into a website, you're always accepting the cookie effect. If you look at the list of companies that it's tracking you, I don't know if you've ever done that, but if you go to like, uh, what are the options, like alternative options for, for cookies, right? It's a huge list of companies. And you're just saying, yes, 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 all day long. That's going to change. Those companies can't pay for that anymore, which means, you know, customer acquisition strategies are going to change, essentially. And I think what we will see is an increasing importance of personalities. It's gonna fuel uh, the already existing macro trend of personalities ruling the, the future of media. And I think, I mean, this is gonna get a little you know, philosophical, I guess, but in the, la- in the next five to 10 years, I think actually in the next five years, I think their credibility as let's call them modern day journalists the ones that are interpreting the world for us, you know, for, the, for their communities, they're going to be judged through some kind of a cryptography. That's cryptography. the word. Cryptography. Hard okay. word to say for a Swedish guy. <laughs> On the blockchain. Hard enough for an English guy, yeah. So go. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's, that's good. I'm happy to hear. So their credibility and their sort of level of value that they're sharing is going to be valued by the fans and sort of... Um, and kept somewhere on a ledger in a decentralized fashion, hence the blockchain. I think that's a really good use of a decentralized protocol like the blockchain, if you know what I mean. Because everybody will have a wallet and, and everything will be digitized over time. Whether it's a collectible or even my house or your house or my car, everything. If we just play with the thought that, that will happen. You would also have your sort of voting as, as a fan, you'll be able to vote on the blockchain and everybody will register that across the entire blockchain system, right? Which you can't, which, you know, that, that is uh, prohibiting fake news really. Like you can't fake that something is cool. Like what the fans are really thinking about something is what they're thinking about something. And that's being registered across the board, you know, through all these fans, let's call them wallets. And I think that's going to lead to certain personalities rising even higher and faster. And I think that's the reason why you want to get into the ambassador game too. I don't know what you think about that, Richard. I'm really keen to sort of hear your thoughts because I'm, I'm, I'm talking here like some kind of a monologue. No, but, but, really but that's okay. Hear what you think. That's all right. Look, I mean, for me, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in a lot of what you say. Um, I'm trying to pick the bones out of it as you speak. So it's interesting because one thing I, I used to work in America. Okay. And, um, 
they obviously don't have national newspapers per se. I'm a newspaper man by training back in the days, back in yep. 20, 30 years ago. That's where I grew up yep. to be a journalist. And in, in, in England, we have national newspapers and we, we, uh, we have uh, John Smith works for the Daily Express. Brian Jones works for the Daily Telegraph and they are linked to it. In America, it's more syndicated and that because the regional or the city newspapers are so strong, the one journalist might work for Miami Herald and he might work for the LA Times. His, his content is syndicated across. Now, I'm interested as a journalist about business models because we, I can see a situation where, yes, micropayments might be happening for individual articles. And, you know, I've started to experiment on Substack, right? Because mm. that's sort of in that realm, the sense you can blog with micropayments, with a newsletter, et cetera, yeah. and build up content that way. That's the sort of the first little, little idea of that. And I, yeah. I, and I think, I think that's a way to go, but it's, it's, it, and of course the athletic, I don't know if you know of, of the athletic, but obviously it's, it's, it's it's um, thrown uh, the cat among the pigeons in terms of sports journalism. I'm concerned it's not going to work, and I would it'd be interesting to see if it morphs into that sort of pay per play. Because at the moment it's a mm. it's a subscription, and um, it's, it's a monthly subscription. Yeah. And you know I've never paid. I've had it for eighteen months, and I've never paid near the full price. Right, and and right. And, and and the full price is more than Netflix. And I'm there thinking, I'm not sure that's going to work in the long term. Right, because, right, as right. you said, it's all about video these days. Albeit, I think the athletics content is is quality. I would love to see it work. I think it might have to morph into more of a sub-stack, micropayment, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I see, I'm a big mm. cricket fan. I see I can do that with articles on The Cricketer, which is a, a magazine here. I can pay mm. 30p an article, right? You know what? Mm. I think 30p is too much. I want to pay 5p an article and then I'll pay for it. Okay, so yeah. so then it's a numbers game, right? And 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 you know 30p isn't too much. It's just in my mind it's too much. And I, I I do think that there's going to be a breakout that people have tried to be individual journalists and make a business out of it in the same way musicians are now trying to make a business out of their musicianship via Patreon, for example, you know, and yeah. it's been interesting in the lockdown, the way that they've changed and morphed their businesses because they can't tour. And of course, since Napster and the digital explosion um, in, uh, in, in music, um, uh, the, the touring has been much more important and, and, and physical sales or digital sales um, yeah. uh, went down. But interestingly, you've gone through the system now and those digital sales are now right up and the big, big publishing houses are still in control. So we've gone through mm. all, and I see a little bit of comparison between what's happened in music and what's happened, mm. might happen in sports rights. But what's actually happened yeah. is you, as far as I can see and what I've read about it, I'm not, you know, I've, I've read a bit, but I'm, I don't claim to be an expert. It seems to me, you've still got the major publishing houses in control Digital publishing um, has taken up a, more of the slack than one would have expected. Touring's massively important. Obviously, you can't do that in a lockdown. So it's interesting. It's taken 20 or 30 years, but the, the powers that be are still in, in charge. And that's mm. an interesting lesson for what we look at, the, where we stand at the moment, not only with the digital transformation in sports, but... Mm 
coming out of lockdown as well, which is a very specific problem that might accelerate the movement of digital for reasons of, okay, well, our connection's been purely digital in lockdown. And also people mm. are thinking, well, we've got to change here and this is opportunity to take that change. Um, yeah. kind of that's, that's what I think. But I wanted to go back on one thing you said. Talking to rights holders and they're saying they don't have a compelling proposition to get first party data, right? Now, okay. Yeah, that's what they say, yeah. Yeah, for me, as someone who works in the big football clubs, you do. You're just not prepared to do it because, for example, Real Madrid went out of the Champions League this week. Okay, no, and you and you were talking about to create the best content, you've got to follow twenty four seven almost be uh, that 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 content creator twenty four seven and um, uh, build in serendipity into your into your content as it were just being there at the right yeah. time but if you're there all the time you're always there at the right time why aren't real madrid got a got a camera in the meeting for between the the head coach and the players the morning after they go out of the champions league why because mm. they consider themselves a, a playing football club first rather than a content creating business or a community business or however you want to phrase it they see performing on the pitch as paramount and mm. what's interesting is that's great content real madrid fans will pay for that mm. they do have a deep connection and they would pay you know i don't know euro two euros or they will sign up for free they'll give you your data to sign up for that but you're not doing yeah. it because of the way you perceive yourself as a club and if you look at something like, I don't know if you've ever, ever heard a hashtag United. Have you ever heard a hashtag United? No. Nope. No? Okay. So hashtag United were a YouTube channel about a sort of a, 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 a parks football team. And then mm. they, they got a little bit bigger, they got a little bit bigger. And um, they started playing sort of the staff team at Arsenal, the staff team at Manchester United or whatever. And, they've, and they're influencers as well. And they've done some stuff. So they're a YouTube channel and they've, they've turned into a minor league football team and they're trying to climb the pyramid. Okay. Cool. They, their YouTube channel, whereas most of the football club YouTube channels, you're a football club first and then you start a YouTube channel. Okay. So YouTube, so, so um, hashtag United's YouTube channel, I think I'm right in saying this year, it had more followers than Tottenham. Right. Because they're a YouTube channel first, they're filming everything. They're treating it as content first. They're a content creator who happens to have a football team. Whereas most of the time, in terms of football teams, you're a big football team that happen to have a YouTube channel. Their, their level of play is poor by their own admission. They're playing at sort of, they've got to win 10 leagues in a row to get in the Premier League, okay? They're low, 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 low. Yeah, yeah. Um, but for me, doesn't that show... There is content out there if, if football clubs or rights holders in whatever country yeah, yeah. are prepared to flip themselves around and say, look, we're a mm -hmm. content creation and a community creation club first, and the football is part of that. But that's because the, that old perception of put our arms around the club, put our arms around the players, still exists. Because they fear embarrassment, because they fear of upsetting the team, etc. Yeah, so, yeah. you know... Thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's very interesting that you bring this up. And I think I think we have to, we should unpack it a little bit. Um, 
those guys that you're describing there that run the hashtag United, hashtag United Football yep. Club. Yep. Those are the ambassadors that I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the, the players. I understand that a player needs to, you know, they need to do their routines. They need to stay focused. When things are going well, they might want to post a lot, but when, you know, things are, are not going so well or if you're injured or whatever, these are interesting news, but they're negative for that individual player. You can't expect a player to play ball at that point. You got to respect that the player has, is a professional athlete and they're playing, they're playing uh, on a team uh, for an organization that wants to win the sport. So that's their job. So that's why I'm saying ambassadors doesn't mean athletes. It could be athletes. I think, I think the person. key here... Yeah. yeah, I mean, the key should be, you know, I think, and we've seen this in, in, in many, like, you know, that's a green fly thing. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with the green fly. Yes, yeah. That's yeah. a collaboration tool that, that does this, that enables collaboration between influencers and super fans and ambassadors, right? The ambassadors could be guys like on the hashtag United team. You know, they, they are very passionate about something and, you know, that the community is interested in. And they're really interested people to listen to and follow and they can carry that narrative. And it gets really interesting when they're speaking with the athletes because the athletes will, you know, they'll build a relationship between, like, let's say it's a, a Google Hangout style conversation like this one between an ambassador in the community, like a super fan influencer, not an athlete and an athlete or, or a coach or whatever. It becomes a very interesting conversation because the super fan influencer will represent the community in that discussion. And the community will you know, be able to relate to that and find the content really interesting. So when I say identifying the, the personalities within you know, your castle wall, whatever, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're actually working within the organization, they're in the community. They might be in the organization, but they might, might as well be, very often they are in, in the community, I would say. So I, th I think that's an important piece to involve the people that are sharing the same passion points as the rest of the community. And they're willing to, you know, almost like fueled by passion, they're willing to contribute to the community and, and to share value. Those are the people will, that will do what I, what I described earlier, you know, have a camera around at all times and be ready all the time these are the future, you know, journalists, in, in my view. And it's an opportunity for them, too, to build their, their personal brands. I was speaking with one of the ambassadors for the Handball Federation in Sweden. Um, it's a woman. Her name is Amanda. And she's doing a lot of the handball content now for, for their own and operated platforms. They're the handball entourage in Sweden. And... She's experienced a, like a, a lift, a, a huge uplift on her social following. Just because she's, you know, almost like a, the voice of handball in Sweden now. So it's a benefit for an ambassador or personality that let's say currently isn't inside the castle walls, doesn't have that unique access that a rights holder can give and provide. And um, there's a huge benefit for those people to sort of get inside the castle walls and share their value inside the community 
because they will get get it back in 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 terms of social in the form in the shape of social currency on the social platforms on their own accounts right so that's i think that's i think that's a fair um statement that it's there's a there's not like a one sided interest here it's a mutual interest in working together with your ambassadors because you it allows the club to get their narrative out in in a way that sort of fans can relate to but you know those ambassadors were still not just any guy or any woman in the street it's somebody who's vetted reputationally you know they're not like loosey goosey loose cannons and you never know what's going to happen next these people are are vetted by by you know in our case actually the technology because it's kind of the gatekeeper the tech is the gatekeeper for for the ambassadors but anybody can be a personality inside let's say you know Manchester United's entourage or whatever but if they don't behave of course they're out do you know what I mean so it's sort of self regulating your platform is about micro content creation and managing that network and aggregating it distributing it where do you mm-hmm. stand on the quality versus speed debate yeah so i respect that different brands will have different strategies for you know with regards to quality and 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 their sort of their presence how they present themselves but you know with the brands that have an idea of being you know whatever high quality is perceived as but let's call it high quality i don't know high resolution images and nice lighting that sort of thing if they have that strategy i respect it but honestly i i think it's never the right way to go uh, i think it's you know i think quality is not as important like what is quality by the way like should should we first define quality because maybe i'm maybe i'm talking about the wrong things here what is quality really uh i would say obviously you've got to have the basics of being um uh audible and uh viewable in a right in, in, right. in the right in the right way okay. um to, got to, it to, to a great extent but but also right but also there's an element of you know there's sd and hd right there's a difference in quality that that is that is picture quality there is also the way something is presented the way it is edited the way it is cut you know you can you can whack something out very quickly mm. with a point and shoot yeah. that is still reasonable social content these days mm. however you can also uh, uh shoot it with a, a 4k camera mm. and get it in an edit suite with a professional editor that's also social content so yeah um, one I would say is higher quality in terms of not only the the nuts and bolts of the visuals and the audio, mm. but also the way it's presented, and then being on brand as well and Got presenting it. a story. Yeah. And one thing, and one thing that that I think your um, co-founder Sean wrote about is presenting a consistent narrative in content yeah. and the importance of that. I think he was talk, talking about football clubs at the time, but yeah. that brand content, I think that's really important. And he talked about yeah. yet again, the pointless numbers, whereas being mm. on brand, having a quality that is relevant to you as a brand is also important. Um, we see so much content. We scroll so through so much and so much of it doesn't stand out. And I want, I want things to stand out and say, well, that's my club straight away. Right. The way it's shot. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I think you, you can have both. Like, you can be on brand, 
by using tools like Slate Teams or something similar. Um, I think everybody should start using them now. Great company, great founders, great product, and very easy to use. And you know, so so, so and you can be authentic or you can be on the fly, you know, and, and at the same time. So I think I still say that quantity and consistency rather is more important. You can still be on brand and, and be consistent at the same time. You can have a variety of you know content. Uh, being published on your various, you know, destinations, you know, social media platforms and your O&O. Um, and, and you can try different tactics while still being on brand. You know, the content could be maybe short and on the fly and that's a tactics and you will get the data and see how that works. And then you could do like a, a you know, more um, produced piece with nice lighting or whatever, maybe a studio piece and see how that performs. You should try to schedule the pieces in different times of the day. And you should, you know, basically use the historic data to predict what's working and what doesn't work, but always be on brand. And that's easy. You, you have, as I said, Slate is a great product for, for mobile publishing. Uh, you can easily just use a template that you set up once and then it just works and works and works. And it's responsive for different sort of formats for the different platforms and just push it very easily through basically clicking a button. And, and then you have great products like you know StreamYard for more sophisticated production. Um, same thing there. You can set up your brand, different brands, even different sponsored shows and different branded content. It's so easy to do that with technology today. So I think you just go ahead and try as much as you know many different you know tactics as you can, and then instead look at the historic data to predict the future instead of trying to think too much about like, should I do this or that, or be too smart, honestly, because you're only gonna be smart once you've tried something. That's why in, in, in technology development, that's A-B testing, right? So you're testing A and you're testing B. So you're launching a new feature and maybe for your Android users, there's a yellow button, but then you, for your iOS users, you have like a blue button for the same functionality. And they say, oh, the iOS people are, are pushing that button all day long, but none of the Android users are, then you know what works, right? It's that simple. You should, I think you should use the same thing with content strategy. Try a variety of things, you know, obviously with ambassadors and, you know, various ambassadors too, and different demographics and, and ages and genders. And, and that's sort of, there's so many people out there that are great storytellers. And I mean, they'll, they're happy to, to sort of pitch in their time and, and get the work done and, and engage with the community. And, and there's nobody better than those personalities to do, to do so, in my view. I'm aware you can got... concentrate on winning the games. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, I, uh, my point about that, about winning the, about the um, going up and up close and personal with the players is that I, I actually think that could potentially shift over the long term. That yes, players have to be athletes, they have to be professional, they are trying to win. Winning is valuable in terms of all sorts of things commercially, media rights, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But, but it's fans easy for them. Want so, so, but fans want Yeah, it's easy for them, Rich, that if they can interact with a trusted super fan yep. that the community loves, that's gonna, you know, that's gonna result in them earning social currency as well. So that means they're building their personal brand, 
while doing, you know, work and sharing value for the community. They don't have to do so much. It's like when you're interviewing me now, you make it very easy for me to, you know, to talk about stuff that I care about because you're, you're sort of the vehicle for the conversation or, I mean, the, the conversation is the vehicle, I guess, for, 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 for the messaging, the communication here, but you making this possible. Yeah. So I think in a similar fashion, you'll find your personalities, your ambassadors that you can trust. And it's so easy now to use tools that are out there already, you know, Upflens, Tiger, what have you, to vet the right people and make sure they're reputationally uh, the right people to work with and that they have a future, not just a history as a personality online, et cetera. And, and, and just make it easy for yourself. That will get you the first party data. And that's the third thing that we talk about. So having the robots, you know, working your social handles, ambassadors working with you and your community to have a compelling offering that is really creating that sticky relationship with the fan uh, community that you need to get fans to be interested enough to you know, sign up and register and provide their first party data, which you're happy to do. There are a lot of studies on this from Snapchat where you know, the branded content side of Snapchat has been really successful with regards to when you as a brand, you're sharing value instead of pushing things, which is kind of the old way of doing marketing, if it ever worked, honestly. You're involving the community instead. And I think I see a lot of trends. Um, I, I recently, by the way, saw a, a competitor to Server Monkey. You know, Server Monkey was the, the questionnaire thing. It's been around for like 15, 20 years. And it's almost like we to, came to the point where like, so I'm going to do a questionnaire. What am what, what I using? I'm using Server Monkey. And we don't even think about it anymore. But that can also evolve. And I saw a new product. I can't remember the name of it. I think it was Jebit or something, where you a brand can can ask the fans in a very native like integrated fashion a few questions and while when the fans are asking those questions that are asked on behalf of a sponsor for example let's let's call it a car brand for example they get some kind of a reward so instead of having a long questionnaire you can have just a couple of questions at the time and they can go out you know, every week or every second week consistently. That will create a, a communication and a conversation with the fan, fan base. And when they're earning something back, like they're getting recognition of some kind back, that, that's what's really has, has worked really well in, in Snapchat. And studies show that once you do that, you're sharing value instead of pushing things as a brand and you're just entertaining a little bit more and, and you're engaging the fans in, in a participatory fashion that's when they open up and they're willing to speak about your brand and they can help you to, to actually, you know, develop your products. Cause they'll be saying before, you know, they can actually help you to prototype and, and refine your products and your offering and, and your price points and all that stuff. Like that's the future to me. How big an opportunity is right here right now? Cause the, what's happened with the pandemic does seem to have, accelerated the need, changed the conversation, um, pushed things forward a little bit. Uh, is, yeah. is that what you see? And as I say, what's the opportunity now? Yeah. You know, let's, are we talking about the big sports? I, I make a difference between like large sports properties, like medium size and small properties. That's different. But I, I assume we're talking about medium size and up. 
Yeah, I think, I, yes, that's right. I mean, look, yeah. I, I tend to gravitate towards football because it's A, it's my background, B, it's the biggest. Got it. However, but okay. the Champions League clubs, forget them, they're on a different plane, yeah. right? Yeah. But, but, but the sort of rank below them that have to right. start working, have to be working, yep. have to be clever, what's the opportunity for them? Yeah. So I think for EFL clubs or for the Premiership clubs, similar and even smaller leagues below that because they all have community right and you see this in the vc industry now a vc is looking at different parameters now when making an investment so i'm making the comparison here like where are you going to invest your time like like as a football club let's say you're you're investing your resources into something and the VC firms that are the smartest are investing in communities, like in companies that can build community. I think a really good example is the Andreessen Horowitz uh, investment in Clubhouse, for example. They're not only investing in Clubhouse because it grows like a weed and it's gone completely mad and viral and all that stuff and it's affecting the entire social media landscape. It's very disruptive and that sort of thing which that's what they normally would invest in. But in addition to that, it's also a media outlet for, for memes or for conversations or, or you know, all the things that actually matter to people, right? So they're actually investing in a vehicle to build their brand and to build a reputation and keep sort of evolving what they are as a VC. And they're consolidating that value in the community of Clubhouse. You know the founders of or or the partners, you know, uh, of of the VC firm, are on Clubhouse all day long. You know, as ambassadors of their of their firm, I think in a similar fashion. Even it's easier. You know, you don't have to acquire your community because you already have it. You got to start having conversations with the community, and again on Clubhouse, what do you do to get on Clubhouse? You register, and what does that mean? Well, you're providing your first party data and then you start talking and there's somebody listening to what you're saying and analyzing that, not in a creepy way, but in a, in a, in a positive way. You can do that in positive ways. I think that's what you should be investing in. And I think it's nothing new. It's been that way since way back when, you know, you, as, a, as, as a club, you wanted to get into the arena game, you know, because, you know, the ticket revenue is just insane and, and hot dogs and beers and all that stuff. That's where a lot of these clubs are performing at the highest level. They should take that same strategy because now when everything is, 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 is going online, everything that, we, that we're aware of in the offline world and everything that exists will be marketplaceified and brought online in different various ways. There will be an arena equivalent online, of course. Don't you want to own a piece of that? as you do in the offline world, why would you not own your flagship store on Manhattan if you're the NBA, you know, selling your jerseys? Like they do, right? Same with, thing with the NHL. And those stores are printing money, building their brand, building the community. Honestly, like every time people go to New York, they visit those stores. It's a very important, I think that's a very important point. A lot of properties are already doing that really well. 
even smaller ones, you know, the merchandising piece, the ticketing thing, how you handle your, your, your community in the, in the offline world. Why don't you consider yourself, you know, working in, shouldn't you be working in a similar fashion online? Why would you provide all your first party data and your community to something like a black hole of, of Facebook? Just sharing that first party data into the black hole, right? Don't you want to know who your customers are in the same way as you're doing so well in the offline world? That, that is something kind of mind-boggling to me. And I think that's where that, that's an important question to ask yourself as a rights holder. Um, so the biggest opportunity, in my view, back to your question, is to, to invest in the community because it's, it's one of the three biggest moats, in my view, going forward for, for any business in the online world. It's almost like you're establishing your city or your village or maybe just a few houses doesn't even make out a village but it's still your community and that city or village needs to be um established online and you need to be the mayor that's it and last one just because i very rarely get someone who knows so many products around right you've mentioned so many products really interesting really useful so say I'm a, a, a lower level football club in England, okay? What are the best low cost products I could employ to improve my business in any way? Just some recommendations for yeah. you. Just because you seem to be really yeah. good in this area, I thought I'd, I'd, uh, I'd get your recommendation. Yeah, good question. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. Like there's so many website, you know, companies, let's call them like Wix or Squarespace or those kinds of companies that have templates. They're ready to go. You can fire them up. They're 10 bucks a month. That's, that's the first thing you should do. You, you sort your business card, right? Like make it easy for yourself and fire up a website in half an hour. Get, go move away from that webmaster thing, you know, where you have your WordPress thing. You can do that too if you're more sophisticated. But if you're if you're just if you're a club and you want to focus on on the stuff that matters in the sport, but you need to get some kind of a presence, I think, in the online world, and it shouldn't be that old website from 1999. There are new tools, you know, like I said, Squarespace, Wix, etc. And then you should build from there. Like, I think the next thing to do is probably to identify these people that are passionate and they actually have. Um, specific knowledge or specific skills that you can use for free, you know, fueled by passion, and they can add the next layer, layer of, of uh, community building features on, on your, in your online presence, whether it's handling that robot thing that we talked about, whether it's actually being a spokesperson for your community and a representative of the community, an ambassador uh, to build your, you know, your first party, um, data, which is an important asset. And instead of looking at things short term, like probably think of it this way. I know you're being chased, you know, financially all day long. Are you thinking, you know, we don't have a lot of cash or whatever. We need to sort things in the short term. But that's never proven to be a good business strategy. Like there's one company that I know of, at least, that has made it and become a really big company and profitable company that has been thinking short-term, short-term, short-term. You gotta think about the long-term. So instead of thinking six months, three months, whatever it is, 
think like at least a couple of years, five, you know, preferably even 10 years, because a lot of people, and I think this is Bill Gates, actually, I think it's one of the best things he said, um, said a lot of good things, but one of the best things that he said in this context is that you overestimate what you can do in one year and you're underestimating, underestimating what you can do in 10 years, right? And I think that ties into what I was talking about. Like if you have a strategy, not necessarily a strategy that is like cemented, but maybe your strategy is actually to try different tactics. Touch that tactic a little bit. See if that turns into your strategy or long-term thing. Make sure that you evolve it over time and you have people that are ready to do the work for you and you leverage existing technology that are very low cost, like Squarespace and other tools that are available, like the Content X tool from, from Infront or WSC Sports from you know the Israeli company that is doing the, the automatic posting. There are many other products. And I should say I'm not a shareholder in any of those companies, by the way. So that's a disclaimer. That's important. But uh, so I'm not pushing any products. There's so many products out there you can use for this. It, it's not hard. It's a lot easier than, than you might think. Johan Juncker, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Rich, for having me. You can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com. Thank you.